0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. You may think that Indiana Jones presents a swashbuckling vision of archaeology that's only really found on the silver screen. But in fact, real archaeological history is also packed with exciting and awe-inspiring tales of discovery. In his new book, X Marks the Spot, Professor Michael Scott has charted some of these sensational stories. He dug into them with David Musgrove, considering how far the fictional image of intrepid treasure hunters is an accurate reflection of archaeological reality.
2: So what is the idea with the book Michael? What are you trying to do?
3: partly it is a homage to the fact to to the character of Indiana Jones right which uh, was a great inspiration for me when I was little and kind of leading me down my path towards finding the study of ancient history and the study of the ancient world and obviously we have a new Indiana Jones film coming out this June kind of a, perhaps the final installment of Harrison Ford as the the legendary heroic archaeological character but it is, at the end of the day, a fiction, a Hollywood fiction. What's the truth? What does real discovery look like? And that's kind of the the initial entry point for me when starting to write this book, in that we have these extraordinary moments of discovery, these eureka moments when great things or sites and places from different ancient cultures around the world have been found. And I wanted to explore what that moment of discovery was like. But very quickly, what really became apparent is that you, you can't just explore a moment. Often, there isn't just a moment. It's actually quite a long tail and slow process of discovery, sometimes over years and even decades. But equally, you can't understand the discovery without looking at the discoverer and actually looking at their story as an individual where they came from, how they came to be in that place at that time to make that discovery, how they had the tools and the experience and the expertise to be able to, to break that, make that breakthrough at that particular time. That then led me to think about, you know, there's actually an even bigger picture here because we can't excavate and look for everything from every past there has ever been. Every exploration, every archaeological investigation is an active choice to focus attention in a particular place at a particular time. And that choice is guided by a whole series of bigger factors, whether that be sort of geopolitics or kind of particular academic fascinations. So it was trying to bring all of that together in this book and say, okay, so we have these moments, these eureka moments of of discovery, but actually who's involved, who are the personalities involved, what are their stories, and then what's the context that's been guiding and helping people towards that particular kind of discovery at that moment? And then, of course, what have we made of that discovery? What What have we actually gained about our understanding of the ancient world from that discovery? And equally, what kind of role has that object or place that's been discovered come to have in our modern society. And that's kind of an equally interesting story that uh, never ends because the past kind of keeps on being of use to the present in all sorts of different ways. So overall, as we sort of picked through those different discoveries that, that I wanted to focus on, we really ended up with a with a picture of, of the last 200 years or so of archaeological exploration, starting in 1799 with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and ending, you know, with an ongoing investigation now in 2023. Uh, and across that 200 years and across those eight stories of discovery, we end up with the, the story of the development of archaeology as a discipline in and of itself.
2: Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And uh, yep, like you, I was fascinated by Indiana Jones as a boy. That's probably what encouraged me to, to take up archaeology. We'll come back to, uh, to Indiana Jones later on in the conversation, if that's okay. I wonder, so you've chosen eight episodes, obviously you've editorialised and curated uh, that, that choice, if you had to pick a moment or episode, and this maybe isn't one of the ones that you've chosen, that initiates the modern discipline of archaeology, when would that be? In other words, can we say when archaeology as a modern discipline comes into force? I don't think we can
3: say a moment because it actually depends on the different areas of the world that we're talking about or interested in as to when archaeology comes to the fore and what archaeology looks like in the particular arenas of study of the ancient past. Uh, and there are different moments for, for those different kind of breakthroughs and developments there as well. So, you know, if we were looking in kind of the Greek and Roman Mediterranean, for instance, we might kind of point to the second half of the 18th century when people like Stuart and Revett were actually getting to Athens for the first time and making their first detailed drawings of the surviving architectural remains and publishing them as the, the antiquities of Athens, as they did in 1762. But, um, but if we were thinking about the, the, the if you like the discovery of early man and thinking about the earliest history of mankind, then actually kind of the very end of the 18th century, and we touch on this in the book because the character of, of John Frere is actually the great great grandfather of Mary Leakey, who is one of the main kind of protagonists in the book. He in 1798 was making the first Detailed drawings of early man's stone tools as he was discovering them, actually in Suffolk, in the UK, and actually, uh, you know, directing attention to the fact that this kind of material needed very careful study and analysis as part of the beginning of our understandings of, of kind of early early humanity. And then, and then we open the book with the Rosetta Stone discovery in 1799, which kind of really kicks off archaeology in Egypt and, and kind of its sort of less archaeological um, cousin Egyptomania, where everyone just wanted to own a bit of ancient Egypt as opposed to, to properly study it. So kind of that moment sometime during the course of the 18th century is probably where I would put my, my marker, but particularly in the second half, and then really starting to, to zoom ahead uh, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century.
2: Okay so that's really handy um positioning and I suppose if we're talking about the second half the 18th through to the 19th then a lot of the stories that we're talking about and these these sort of great adventurous exploratory stories that you identify they're conducted in in I suppose quite a specific colonial imperial context with western explorers heading into foreign lands and making these exciting fabulous discoveries. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about how we should understand those stories in the light of, of current conversations and research about the impact of imperial and colonial history. Well, I think the first
3: thing is we have to acknowledge it, right? You know, the imperial context is is unavoidable and indeed crucial to understanding why people had the opportunity to look for or indeed were encouraged and were primed to look for particular things and places from particular pasts and ancient cultures at particular times in that moment right kind of you know a lot of those geopolitical forces I was mentioning at the beginning that sort of encouraged those explorers to look in particular places were to do with that imperial context so if we take the the first chapter of the book for instance looking at the discovery of the Rosetta Stone you know there is France's desire to actually capture Egypt in part as part of that bigger geopolitical power play of the time to counterbalance british influence in india so kind of there is a geopolitical kind of world game going on that's encouraging france and napoleon in particular to launch his military expedition of egypt but that doesn't in and of itself explain why they were then interested in and looking for bits of Egypt's past. And that can only be explained by sitting alongside that kind of geopolitical context and desire for for territorial gain and control. There was equally, at that moment, towards the second half of the 18th century, a fascination with the ancient past of Egypt, both in some ways because it was it was associated with biblical narratives but at the same time crucially because Egypt had become a kind of byword particularly the ancient history of Egypt become a byword for bizarrely mystical modern imaginative revolutionary Thinking. What had France just gone through? Of course, the French Revolution. France saw itself as the inheritor, the natural inheritor of this kind of mystical, magical, new revolutionary thinking that was encapsulated in ancient Egypt and so wanted to be associated with it. And that's why you end up with a Napoleonic military invasion of Egypt that has in amongst the troops a dedicated team of academics uh, that are taken there with all the instruments and books about ancient Egypt that there were at the time to study ancient Egypt at the same time as conquer um, it. So we we can't disassociate that kind of imperial context and the geopolitics of the particular moment from the fact that uh, kind of at the same time there were a certain number of interesting academic and cultural interests in the past that aligned, came together, and then were made possible, if you like, by that military uh, conquest. But, you know, that's symbolised, I think, by the fact that Napoleon, then when, when he went back to France, you know, he was in the midst of kind of obviously kind of all sorts of political intrigue in France itself, and then, of course, across the European stage. But that he was there at the launch of the academic publications of all the finds that his team of academics had made. You know, at the launch of the, the Description d'Egypte, the nine volumes or so of academic description and discovery of ancient Egypt that we found, he thought it was important enough for him to be absolutely there, present, and associated with that academic endeavor at the same time and overlapping with his political and territorial ambitions.
2: Now, just um, going back to something you talked about, you mentioned the Rosetta Stone. Obviously, that's one of, your, one of the stories you tell. I can't imagine any of our listeners aren't familiar with it, but just in case, can you just remind us what the Rosetta Stone is and was?
3: So the Rosetta Stone was a stone that was unearthed by uh, Napoleon's soldiers in the Egyptian town of Rashid, to the Westerners known as Rosetta, in 1799, in the early phases of his Napoleonic invasion of Egypt. And immediately, when they uncovered this stone, they were they were going to use it for sort of building up uh, the uh, fortifications of a dilapidated fort. But they recognised that there were three texts on this stone in three different languages. And because there was that academic uh, side to the military campaign, this stone immediately got elevated up, sent through to Cairo, where it was looked at by the the Institut d'Egypte that had been set up by Napoleon, uh, where all his academics had had gathered. And they realised that this text was in ancient Greek at the bottom, and they could read the ancient Greek. That was fine. And what it said in the ancient Greek was that the, the text had been written in three languages, uh, one of which was hieroglyphic, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Now, it seems crazy to imagine, but in 1799, no one could read Egyptian hieroglyphs. In fact, humanity had collectively sort of forgotten how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs because when the Roman Empire that had conquered Egypt and absorbed Egypt, when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity in the 4th century CE and onwards, Egyptian hieroglyphs used very much in Egyptian religion and thus in Egyptian temples and sanctuaries had become part of that pagan world that the Christian world wanted to leave behind. And as a result, humanity had sort of abandoned the knowledge and understanding of hieroglyphs and completely forgotten how to read them. So in 1799, everyone wanted to be, again, associated with ancient Egyptian history and culture, but couldn't read their language, the language of hieroglyphs. And here in the Rosetta Stone was perhaps the key piece they needed to be able to break the hieroglyphic code. Because if you had a language, a text in ancient Greek that you could read, and exactly the same text in hieroglyphs that you couldn't read, perhaps you could use the two to actually break the hieroglyphic code and read Egyptian hieroglyphs once again. That academic inquiry to actually break break the code of Egyptian hieroglyphs, took from 1799, when the Rosetta Stone was discovered, through until 1822, when a Frenchman called Jean-Francois Champollion was was the first, if you like, to really be able to crack the hieroglyphic code and decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs for the first time in well over a millennia.
2: One of the quotes in the introduction of your book, and you mentioned it earlier, is uh, what we look for, find and subsequently study is always an active choice. So you're saying that, you know, people have obviously been making decisions about where they go to look for things and what sort of things they're looking for given that, that a lot of these early archaeological discoveries that you talk about in the book were made in sort of with this specific geopolitical situation where certain nations had access to certain areas and, and wanted to do certain things, France and, and, and Britain both having an interest in Egypt, for instance, how far is, has, has that got a legacy today in terms of the areas which, which were have been studied and understood and perhaps areas which haven't been studied and understood quite so much? How far are we still operating within that 18th, 19th century geopolitical culture.
3: Well, I think, I mean, of, of course, in many ways we have moved on greatly. I mean, in the the second chapter of the book, we look at the the case of the explorer Mark Aurel Stein, who set off. To investigate uh, sites and finds in the Taklamakan Desert, which is today part of China, but, but but at his time at the beginning of the of the 20th century, you know, actually was completely unknown. It was a blank on the map and uh, he was going to explore it, both in, able to, in order to fill in that map and to, uh, in the present, <laughs> to actually know what was there now, but equally to explore what was there from the many past cultures that uh, had inhabited that location. And that comes through really, Really clearly, in his books that he wrote, his popular public facing books, not dry academic dusty tomes and archaeological reports, but they were best selling books at the time that he wrote, which speak to both this interest in what is there now as well as what was there in the past. His books, for instance, are absolutely full of photos of the people that he met on his travels in these far flung, distant, unknown parts of the world. And at the time when he was writing and exploring, he was being held up as an explorer kind of on par with those who were off to explore the Arctic and the Antarctic and all these kind of unknown parts of the modern world, as well as uh, exploring their past worlds. You know, obviously we filled in those blanks on the map. There isn't that kind of exploration anymore. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that our eyes haven't been on, as you put it, you know, certain places more than they have been on others, and you know, I think what still we suffer from, and this is only really being righted now in in the very recent decades, is a fixation on sedentary. Civilizations. So, by that I mean the civilizations that actually built great cities and often, as a result, also kind of uh, were engaged in writing great literary and historical texts and tomes that have survived down to us. Now, these civilizations have often become the font of, of so many of our kind of history of civilization stories. It's the Greeks, it's the Romans, it's the Persians, kind of going through to China as well, obviously. All of these great century civilizations have occupied our imagination and our. Consciousness and our focus. At the expense of a whole series of fascinating civilizations that we would today describe as nomadic pastoralists, i.e., people who didn't sit in one place. They didn't build great cities and civilizations, but instead were constantly on the move as part of an annual cycle of migration. Now, they exist in this vast area of what's known as the steppe that runs from the, the Black Sea in the West all the way through to, to China in the East. And traditionally, because these places then these cultures haven't built big cities and, civ- uh, and, and, and monuments, etc., there's been a sort of sense that they were somehow less civilised, less evolved, less interesting, less important to study. And yet what we are finally writing is that understanding, and, and, and recognising that that's completely and utterly wrong, that these cultures, while they chose not to sit in one place and they chose not to build great cities, etc., and indeed, in many cases, chose not to write a long historical and literary accounts of themselves that have survived down to us, that does not mean in any way that they weren't as civilised as sophisticated and indeed surrounded themselves with as rich a culture of things as we might have expected of any of the great kind of sedentary civilizations. One of the chapters that I found absolutely fascinating uh, researching in this book is looking at the work of the Russian archaeologist, uh, Dr Natalia Polosmak, who's been working in on, on the Ukok Plateau in the Altai region of Siberia, Russia, which is a, a tiny sort of speck of Russia that that sits at the borders of modern-day China, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and Russia. Uh, and in the 90s, she was investigating there what are known as ice-filled kurgans. Now, kurgans are sort of a big pile of stones that are placed over the burials site of individuals from some of these particular nomadic pastoralist communities. And in that particular region of the the wider steppe, they're known as the Pazirik culture. But what makes this area very special is that because of the particular environmental conditions, meant that once these graves were made, come the next winter, snow and ice water would fill up these underground graves, and then in the next winter would freeze As ice. And because there was this Kurgan stone capping, if you like, above the particular area of the grave, come the next summer, that particular area underneath those cooling stones would never warm up again enough for that ice to melt. As a result, we have these graves frozen in ice, frozen in time, for us to be able to investigate and understand the very complex ritual procedures and, and objects and lifestyles of this particular Pazirite community. And in the 1993, Natalia Bolozmak discovered uh, the burial of someone known as the Princess of Altai, whose grave was in such good condition when it was thawed out of the ice that they found her body inside her coffin, and the, the flesh was in such good condition that we see the extraordinarily vibrant blue tattoos that this woman had all over her arms and her chest and have been able to kind of investigate uh, her life down at, at a microscopic level to be able to put it together in incredible detail and understand finally something about her life, her community, and as a result, the the sort of pazarik culture more generally. And it's pictures like this that I think are really beginning to finally put right this imbalance that we have had for an awfully long time between the study of great sedentary civilizations and equally great nomadic pastoralist ones.
4: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Yeah, that, that absolutely fascinating finds there, and I'm certainly seeing a lot more books coming through with with a focus on these uh, nomadic societies. So I think you're absolutely right in the, the 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 focus is shifting. Can I just take us back a bit to some of the the earlier um, stories in the book, and they're often great stories, aren't aren't they? They're stories of adventure, exploration, daring do, the sort of things that um, that sort of take us back to to Indiana Jones a bit. I wonder can, can we ascertain the motives of the people going out and making these discoveries? Were they generally sort of larger than life figures who who really just wanted to explore and and, and be famous and and be be lauded at home for for going to foreign lands and and having fascinating adventures? Or were they scientists and archaeologists looking to do um, serious research?
3: we have to see them as a mix of both. And it also depends on the particular find. So the Rosetta Stone that we started with, you know, that was found by accident, by soldiers who had been given a job to build up a dilapidated fort as a military defensive position. And, and and you know, the discovery story then becomes one of a, a much wider community of um, academics across the world who are all racing against one another to to, to crack the hieroglyphic code. In the case of Marco Aurel Stein, we have an individual who, you know, since from boyhood, as we trace his interest back from boyhood, he's fascinated by the adventures of Alexander the Great going east towards the shores of India. As he grows up, he's developing his expertise in all sorts of languages from that part of the of, of Central Asia. He's associating himself uh, when he's in London for a while with all the people that have been working in India and have experience there. He then gets himself a job out in India, and he's exploring, 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 and developing that package of expertise that can actually then be useful in filling in the, the, the gap in the map, particularly in his case around the the, the Taklamakan Desert and the, and the communities, and uh, both present and past, that are there. Now, the story of what he goes through, he's sitting in the desert for months on end, trekking through 40, 50 feet high sand dunes, nearly dying several times from dehydration. He's working in communities far, far away from any kind of sort of relaxed and enjoyable lifestyle, and certainly away from kind of the the, the lifestyle he could have been enjoying as an academic, sort of sitting back in in the university where he was based. These people are extraordinary and and slightly odd, you know, I think in some ways as well, to want to subject themselves to those kind of difficulties and lifestyle. Uh, He loses a, a half of his foot to frostbite in one of his expeditions. And as a result, they are particular kinds of people, people that in many ways we might find it quite hard to identify with ourselves, that they want to put themselves through this. And yet at the same time... you know, why do they do that rather? Yes, of course, in part, there's a certain amount of desire for renown and success within their chosen career. But it is also uh, a commitment to discovery and to, you know, overturn the particular understandings of the day. In Marco Stein's case, there was a a sort of lack of acknowledgement of quite how much the ancient world and the different communities of the ancient world had been in communication with one another in antiquity. This was a world in which great powers were gearing up and drawing the dividing lines between them, and yet here was Marco R. stein exploring in the Taklamakan Desert, proving that languages had been used, spreading from across thousands of miles across Central Asia, that ideas, senses, uh, the the understanding of particular gods, religion had moved east and westwards in what we now today know as the Silk Roads, right? And kind of, but, you know, at the time that he was exploring was really only starting to come into focus and be acknowledged that these communities in antiquity had been much more engaged with one another than perhaps the modern world was, was hoping to be at that particular time. So I think they are all individuals who want to kind of overturn current understandings. They want to sort of actually show up where things are, we've got it wrong. And that makes them in many ways very admirable characters, even though at the same time we might not admire today some of the things that they chose to go on and do in the name of discovery. So Mark Rothstein makes another very, very good case for it because, of course, as part of his investigations, he is very open about the fact in his publications at the time that he turned up at the Thousand Buddha Caves in Dunhuang and effectively bought a whole bunch of manuscripts uh, that were sitting in this live religious Buddhist site from the, the, the sort of custodian of the site and, and, and carted off thousands of manuscripts at for, for a mere tuppence. And while that was acceptable, just about at the time that he was doing it. It is now something that we would absolutely want to distance ourselves from and never want to see happen again. So we have quite a complex relationship with these individuals. I think Actually, trying to understand them as people and their willingness to put themselves through such hardship, we find that difficult to understand and quite admirable all at the same time. We can admire their desire to overturn current understanding and to add to the corpus of human knowledge, as kind of both from the perspective of wanting to make a success for themselves, but also wanting to push forward kind of the boundaries of human knowledge at the time. That's again very admirable. But at the same time, some of the ways in which they chose to do it, we now would want to say. That is unacceptable, uh, and it shouldn't happen again. And of course, in many cases, we are also still trying to now right the, the perceived wrongs of what was done in the past in the present.
2: Now then discoveries so you you tell um, some really great stories in this book you're a great writer and you've and you've got some great stories to be told of these of these fascinating extraordinary discoveries i'm sure any archaeologist listening and you also yourself i'm sure would agree that archaeology itself these days is not necessarily a story of discoveries it's it's often painstaking long-duration research often in sort of unglamorous offices trying to understand and synthesize and work out what's going on which leads me to, to a, a second quote from you where you say what we do with the past, we discover is just as important as the initial discovery and interpretation itself. So, do you want to give us a little bit of a sense about sort of the the, the aftermath of these discoveries and, and and how they how the research moved on? I think this is
3: for me this this came out very very quickly in in the book that actually telling the story of the discovery up to the point that it was discovered and then sort of understood was only the beginning right of the story of what what role that particular object or that place has gone on to play in not just academic dialogue, but in in the public imagination and in public dialogue. And I think one of the latest lessons that archaeology has had to learn, and it's really only learnt this in the last couple of decades, is the need to be constantly and continually involved in that bigger public dialogue and that bigger kind of public imagination of these objects and places and to be part of that dialogue rather than to think that its job is done when it's published its its, its report, its academic report on the finds. I, I mean, I think one of the clearest examples of this is, is Machu Picchu that we, we look at in one of the chapters of the book. Now this was discovered, or Machu Picchu was discovered, and there's another question of kind of, what does discovery mean in terms of Machu Picchu? Because lots of locals knew about it before before the discoverer uh, Hiram Bingham III turned up to to bring it to world attention. But you know, Machu Picchu uh, was discovered 1911, 1912, published uh, vociferously in in very kind of broad mainstream media, Harper's Monthly Magazine, National Geographic Magazine, as well as in numerous books that were complete sellouts at the at, at the time. Yet no one knew what it was. Hiram Bingham himself the, the sort of discoverer had a had a theory that it was related to one of the very earliest sites of the uh, Incan civilization which no one accepted. No one thought this was true, but no one had a good other alternative to actually put forward. And so we had a site, we had Machu Picchu that had absolutely captured world imagination from 1913 onwards. But no one knew what it was. And so actually, it wasn't until the 1980s and afterwards that we got a really good resolution and understanding of what Machu Picchu was it was a an estate a royal estate belonging to one of the inca rulers that uh, he used when he wanted to get out of town kind of for a bit of a bit of a bit of a relax and get away from it all it was kind of an inca inca ruler's camp david if you like so you know we Machu Picchu is this tiny little estate we now understand home to about 750 people backs that was used only for a couple of months a year by one inca ruler and after that it sort of served as, as a sort of breadbasket, if you like, to provide an income to a small group of people who then kept the ritual worship of that particular Inca ruler alive for the rest of uh, the time of the Inca civilization. And yet, Machu Picchu has become this extraordinary world icon, you know, one of the most famous sites in history, right, and in humanity's imagination of the past. Not because it was a kind of Inca Camp David, but because it has spoken to and answered so many things Things that we want to see from the past in the present. So, if we think about uh, Machu Picchu in the sixties and seventies, it became the ultimate hippie traveller destination, right? You know, this was the place that you would go to to get away from the world, to get away from modernization and to commune back with uh, kind of the elementals of nature, etc. And to a certain extent, Machu Picchu has retained that, that that reputation all the way through to today. At the same time, in Peru itself, Machu Picchu has gone through an extraordinary journey of initially, at the time it was discovered back in 1913, the Peruvian government really wasn't interested in it at all. They didn't want the symbol and identifying cultural remnant of their modern nation to be an ancient indigenous site. They wanted it to be the new modern trading capital of Lima. And so actually, Machu Picchu, kind of within Peru, has been at the centre of this big tussle over what do we want to be known for as a nation? And it's only, again, since the sort of end of the, the very end of the 40s, 1948 uh, was a key date in in sort of Machu Picchu's story in in, in this regard, and and through that uh, Machu Picchu has been recognised actually as a kind of proper cultural symbol for the identity of Peru as a modern nation and been accepted and embraced as such going forward. And today, we now have Peruvian presidents who take their oaths of office standing in front of Machu Picchu. And more sadly, with all the current political upset that is going on in Peru with the revolts and uh, kind of uprisings that, that are currently happening in protest at at a number of the the kind of political kind of uh, stories um, of today, Machu Picchu is kind of the focus of many of those stories because it is the place that Peruvians feel encompasses them and their nation as a good backdrop to their demonstration. So uh, kind of Machu Picchu, I think, uh, presents an absolute ideal test case to think about the way in which a site may be discovered. And those discovering it and the subsequent academic communities may have felt that they understand it or indeed in this case not understand it at all but actually the public dialogue and the public imagination becomes fixated and investigates and gives these places their own its own set of meanings uh, which are kind of as important and as valid and indeed in some ways perhaps more so than the the slightly more narrower kind of academic understanding of the site and you know that finally now we're seeing archaeology really kind of getting in touch with and becoming part of this dialogue.
2: Another thing that um, that comes through very clearly in the book as well is that the stories you're telling are are not wholly dominated by men, which might be surprising given that what we talked about as as we talked about at the top of the interview about this is happening often in the imperial colonial context a couple of hundred years ago. So you might think that it's you know a a very masculine thing, but it's not, is it? And and you've got some great stories which show how far women have been involved in the in the history of archaeology from the get go, really.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know we've already mentioned uh, the Russian archaeologist Dr. Natalia Bolozmak in the nineteen nineties, you know, being at the absolute f- forefront of this breakthrough and being one of the most decorated kind of archaeologists in Russia as a result. But we can we can trace that back. You know, earlier in the book we're looking at a chapter focused on Mary Leakey uh, and her work in the nineteen fifties, sixties, and seventies in Africa, really kind of being at the forefront of proving the African origins of of homo sapiens but but actually kind of proving how complicated and complex the story of human evolution was now mary's a really interesting case because she was growing up and being inspired in that very early phase when women really were starting to come to the forefront of archaeology she began her life she was uh, well, living uh, in egypt and then in France uh, but kind of grew up in her teens and into her 20s uh, early 20s in in england and she was uh, lucky enough kind of you know persistent enough to write letters to, to, to everyone um, involved in archaeology in England at the time, and came under the, the wing, the guardianship of, of one of the really pioneering females uh, in England in, in the 1930s, who was called Dorothy Liddell. And she did, uh, undertook digs at, at Hempry, and then through Dorothy was introduced to another of the pioneering females archaeologists at the time, who was actually working in Egypt and in the Middle East. That was Gertrude Caton Thompson. and She's an extraordinary figure. She was offered the, the Disney professorship of classic, of archaeology. At Cambridge, um, sort of one of the you know the foremost chairs of archaeology, and of course one of the most foremost universities in in the world. She actually turned it down, and then it went to another a pioneering female archaeologist of the time, Dr. Dorothy Gerard, who held the post from 1939 through to 1952, and she was the first woman at either Oxford or Cambridge to hold one of these really prestigious professorial chairs. Uh, so that you know, kind of that 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 end of the 30s into the 40s moment is absolutely critical for women emerging to the very front ranks uh, of what. Had hitherto been a kind of a very male-dominated profession, and then people like Mary Leakey through the 40s, 50s, and 60s really kind of building on that and taking it forward. But you know that doesn't mean that their stories are not ones also still full of having to push back against this kind of latent bias uh, towards men. And, you know, the the, the picture that I love of Mary is an extraordinary character kind of out there in Africa, in Kenya and Tanzania through the 40s, 50s and 60s, making great breakthroughs and bringing with her not just other female archaeologists, but actually also crucially a whole series of local African archaeologists and anthropologists who were part of her team and who she was encouraging and building up to make the discoveries alongside her. In the 1980s, in 1981, the year of my birth, she was given an honorary doctorate, from Oxford. And when she went to the the degree ceremony in which she was given this honorary doctorate, she was praised, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then they had a celebratory dinner afterwards. And she was astounded to find at this dinner in 1981 that post the the, the meal, the men were offered an after-dinner alcoholic drink and a cigar, but the women were not. And she sort of stamped her foot quite rightly, utterly outraged and demanded to have, you know, have both offered to her as well. So you know, kind of, even at that stage in the 1980s, it is extraordinary how these characters are still fighting for equality in every sense. And kind of really they have laid the groundwork for, for now, you know, a field of archeology, span who which kind of is, is as open, I think, as it can be to uh, kind of people from every background coming to get involved bringing their expertise, their insight and their specialism and their passion to discovery of the past.
2: Right, let's finish up by circling back to Indiana Jones, where we started. Your, your book is prefaced with a quote from the 1989 Indiana Jones film. So obviously he's the most famous fictional archaeologist that's ever existed, I suppose. I wonder, do you do you get a sense about how realistic the idea of this, of this buccaneering, exploring archaeologist ever was, are there any figures who you've identified or you've come across in your, in your investigations into the history of archaeology who most closely reflect the film character who, who is so famous probably to everyone who's listening to this podcast?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, Indiana Jones is right there at the, the story of archaeology or the heart of, uh, of the idea that we have of the archaeologist, and yet most modern archaeologists have an absolute love-hate relationship with Indiana Jones you know like yourself like me they were inspired by the character to get into the field and then of course the more you get into the field the more you realize that Indiana Jones as a character is the worst possible kind of archaeologist not least because he destroys every archaeological site he walks into and of course his his the the films you know are very much set in a particular period of time you know in the 40s 50s 60s when the idea that you know something should be grabbed and taken back to a museum in America in his case kind of was absolutely kind of accepted and and, and and to a certain extent kind of considered the the only alternative. Again. Attitudes that we would completely shy away from now. So he is a place of his time and indeed of kind of Hollywood fiction. But he has his origins as a character in the real stories of, of Discovery of the Past. So uh, as far as we can work out, and this is the sort of you know it fairly well acknowledged that Hiram Bingham III, the, the discoverer of Machu Picchu, when he published his final book in, in 1948 on the story of Machu Picchu and, and his his discovery of it. That kind of ignited a a whole kind of uh, public interest in this uh, world of the Incas in, in South America. And that was picked up by Hollywood very, very quickly so that in the early 1950s, there was actually a Hollywood film called Secrets of the Inca, which starred Charlton Heston the character that Charlton Heston played in this film was of uh, an explorer and he was wearing a brown leather jacket, a kind of white shirt, a fedora hat and khaki trousers. And it has been acknowledged that the, the inspiration for the character of Indiana Jones comes from that Charlton Heston figure in that film, The Secret of the Inca, came out in 1953 with the first Indiana Jones film coming out in, in 1981, just under three decades later. So there is a kind of link back, if you like, from Indiana Jones back into the story of real discovery and real archaeology. Although we have to understand that he is a complete you know, fictional character and kind of uh, as far distant from what we would want a modern archaeologist to be as is possible. But at the same time, I find it extraordinary that even in the twenty, the the twenty well, first century, we still can't quite lose that love affair with Indiana Jones. So in in two thousand and eight, when the last instalment of the Indiana Jones uh, franchise came out, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I think it was called, Harrison Ford, the actor, was actually elected to the board of the Archaeological Institute of America. So he was given honorary kind of membership, you know, on the, the the governing board of the main institute of all professional archaeologists in America as a recognition of his the actor's status as uh, an archaeologist through this character that he had played and was then given an award for services if you like to engaging the public in the story of archaeology. So we absolutely clearly even in the 21st century, still want Indiana Jones to be part of the story of archaeology. But I think as long as that comes with uh, an understanding of quite how much Indiana Jones as a character is the antithesis of what we think and, and, and understand and want archaeology to be in the 21st century, then that love affair can continue, but as long as we understand the limitations of it
2: be interesting to see how the how the last iteration of indiana jones uh, shapes up won't it To see whether whether he's whether he's changed anyway. any way i just to, just to finish you might not want to get into this but but maybe you will um you mentioned there that uh, one of the things that indiana jones does is is grab stuff from exotic locations to with a view to taking it back to western museums um that is clearly something that has happened through the story of archaeology and there are lots of artifacts in western museums that um that are now very much disputed what do you have a take on on whether they should still be in, in the museums where they are or, uh, or whether they should be repatriated from whence they came.
3: Yeah, I mean, across the book, we come up with an, uh, a number of the, the, the discoveries that, that we look at are part and parcel of this now modern discussion about how should we right the now perceived wrongs of the past. Now, in the case of Machu Picchu, where Hiram Bingham kind of got away with, if you like, in modern parlance, sort of hundreds of crates of objects from Machu Picchu, they were actually all returned to Peru and to the town of Cusco, where they are now on display in the museum. They're the main town nearest uh, to Machu Picchu as part of the the sentience of Bingham's uh, first trip there um, back in 2011. So in some cases, we have made that decision and gone forward. In other cases, those discussions and and debates are still ongoing. And my view is that actually kind of each discussion has so many particular individual elements to it and to the particular arguments that are made, that there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all kind of solution, and that we do have to think about these things on a case-by-case case basis. And the only thing I would also point to in this discussion that comes out, again, very strongly if we go back to the the chapter um, looking at the discovery of the Princess of Altai by uh, the Russian archaeologist Dr Natalia Bolozma in in 1990s, Her body, the the body of the princess, was initially taken from uh, the Altai and the Yukok Plateau, where it was discovered, back to the Russian city of uh, Novosibirsk, where it was studied at Natalia's Institute for well over a decade. But there was a very, very strong call from particularly the local tribal elders and shamans of the Altai that the body of someone that they thought actually was a kind of early, kind of mythical, mythoreal princess of, of the region where the, her title, the Princess of Altai, comes from, should be returned because the region was actually suffering. Bad things were happening to the region because she had been removed. Uh, and so, again, the decision was taken to return the body um, to a new museum in, in the capital of the Altai. But the difficulty now, we've we've had the return of the object, but actually we are now in a whole series of further complicated discussions because there are many within the community who actually don't think her resting in a museum is good enough. She actually has to be reburied um, in order for justice as they see it to be done. Others, of course, want her still to be on display as a great piece, an incredible piece of the Altai's Past that they want people to come to see and be able to take part in. At the same time, there are many um, academics who would still dearly love to be able to continue their research on this particular individual as new technologies emerge and new abilities to delve deeper into her past and the past of her community come available. But no further study, academic investigation of her body has been allowed. At the same time, uh, kind of, we have uh, a, a climate emergency in the region because climate change is leading to the slow destruction of all those ice Filled Kurgans, ice-filled tombs of which she was one. And so she is sitting there as a symbol of a past, lots of other Kurgans that could be investigated, um, that are slowly thawing and thus will now deteriorate and rot away. So we are letting the past quite literally slip through our fingers. What I would kind of argue is that as we follow these discovery stories and the, the discoveries of the uh the stories of the objects and of the places and as what has happened to them since then. Not only do we realize that actually we need to think about this on a on a case by case basis, but actually the story and the question the story of discovery and the questions around who should own. Care for, display, study these objects become more and more challenging and more and more complex, and that we need to understand and embrace that complexity going forward, and try to come to some kind of compromise if we can, so that uh, a kind of we we are acknowledging all of those different elements of the of the debate.
0: That was Michael Scott. X marks the spot is out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.